Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. How do Kyrgyz politicians and influential figures portray themselves as defenders of the people in Kyrgyzstan's, quote, sacred land, unquote, and yet exploit natural resources and cause severe environmental damage at the expense of local communities? This is the topic of a recent report from the Oxus Society entitled Resource Nationalism and Slow Violence in Kyrgyzstan. As Kyrgyzstan prepares to mark the 25th anniversary of the cyanide spill near the Trumtor gold mine that led to the deaths of several people and temporary evacuation of thousands of other people, we take a look at how Kyrgyz authorities continue to practice resource nationalism and the forms of violence that accompany it. To discuss all this, I am joined by the authors of the report. Barilla Jokli, who leads the research project China, the EU, and Economic Development in East Europe and Eurasia at the Center for Eastern Euro- East European and International Studies, COIS, in Berlin. As a critical geographer, she studies infrastructures, research extractivism, society-nature relations, and authoritarian repression in Central Asia and South Caucasus. Previously, Barilla led transdisciplinary development projects on research governance and on behalf of the German government, the EU, and multilateral organizations. And Vincent Artman, adjunct professor of geography and peace and conflict studies at Wayne State University in Detroit and the University of Delaware. His work has previously focused on Central Asia, specifically on religion, identity, and nationalism in Kyrgyzstan. Thank you both for for being here and joining me today for this discussion. Uh, you know, and I'm going to start with you, Vincent. Could you please, for our audience, describe first what the concept of resource nationalism is? Sure. Thank you for having me today. Resource nationalism is, uh, I think, kind of an emerging field of, of study. Um, in the past, it's often been linked with the notion of uh, controlling natural resources by states. So uh, in ensuring that, you know, the, the government of, of Kyrgyzstan controls gold resources or that Venezuela controls its oil resources, these sorts of things. But there's been some recent work in the discipline of geography in particular. And I think in our in our paper, we cite uh, a, an article by Natalie Cook and Tom Perot that I, I think is a, a real keystone article here that looks at resources as sort of an idiom through which national identity is understood and debated. And I think both in that article and, and our report, th- the idea of resources uh, goes a little bit beyond simply things like oil or gold, although clearly, you know, uh, the, these kinds of things are, are, are quite important, but, but can also look at things like the natural environment of uh, a particular country and the the people's connection to it how does for example the the, the kyrgyz nation however we want to describe that and we probably don't have the time in this uh, podcast to you know delve too deeply into the phenomenon of nationalism itself but how how does the kyrgyz nation imagine itself or how do discourses of kyrgyz national identity connect with the the physical environment of Kyrgyzstan and the resources that are are contained therein, and this is something that I came across uh, when I was doing my own research in Kyrgyzstan back in in 2014. I was particularly interested in the the relationship between uh, Kyrgyz national identity and, and and religious traditions, and something that I I was coming across over and over and over, uh, particularly in discussions of uh, what's known as Kyrgyzchiluk or Kyrgyzness was that 
what it means to be a Kyrgyz is really quite closely linked to uh, the 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 natural environment of Kyrgyzstan and and you know uh, Askar Akayev in, in his his uh, book Kyrgyz Statehood and the National Epos Manas this rather famous sort of piece of nationalist literature says uh, and we quote this in our our report the most valuable legacy of the Kyrgyz people is the sacred land of Alato, which we received from our ancestors. Our ancestors left to present and future generations the wholesomeness and royalty of these fine mountains, the Lake of Sakul, a magnificent pearl that has no equal in the world today, fertile valleys and sparkling mountain streams and rivers on this ancient land in the 20th century, the Kyrgyz people created their own national state. Now, obviously, uh, that that description sort of uh, occludes the, the, the whole border delimitation uh, process that, that occurred uh, earlier in the 20th century and exactly how that national state came to be. Uh, but, but once sort of the, the political territorial unit of, of modern day Kyrgyzstan comes into being, uh, and, and, and this of course gets linked with ideas about national identity and how people who profess to be part of that nation are connected to this particular political territorial unit, the, the land itself becomes sacralized. And the idea of Kyrgyz Chiluk um, is, is extraordinarily uh, connected with, with Mazars, these uh, holy sites within Kyrgyzstan. I recall asking uh, a manashi, one of these, these uh, professional uh, uh, reciters of the Manas epic, if, if Kyrgyz Chiluk would have any particular meaning for somebody who either wasn't from Kyrgyzstan or a Kyrgyz person, perhaps who is living in the United States, and he he looked at me a bit quizzically and and said, "No, you know, it's it's really uh, got to do with with people's connection to this this actual in, environment in this country, the, the the real connection to the land itself." And so we we see that the the natural environment and the resources, however we want to define those, and and maybe I'll leave that to to Beril to to uh, go into that a little bit more. But but the natural environment and the and these resources are something that is uh, seen as as integral to to what it means to be Kyrgyz, and there's a sense of sort of emotional uh, and and maybe even ideological ownership that transcends the the idea of resource nationalism simply in neoliberal terms as you know making sure that the state controls particular uh, natural resources for, for the purposes of, of selling them uh, uh, on the world market. Okay, thank you. And, and, and that does bring me to you, Beryl. Uh, you know, and certainly Kyrgyzstan has this kind of tradition since independence. Uh, you, you don't see these kind of protests at mining sites in, in neighboring Central Asian states at all, but, but we have seen them uh, several times in Kyrgyzstan in the last 20, 30 years. So can you expl- can you please add to what Vincent said? And also, I'm kind of curious about the second part of the title of your report, too, about the slow violence. Can you comment on that a little bit? Hi, Bruce. Um, it's great to be back. Thanks for having us. Let me try to sort my ideas. Vincent did already a great introduction. I'll try to pick the threads. Yeah, violence. Uh, maybe just a step back, actually, um, mm-hmm. on on how we got on on working together on this project, um, which might explain um, my motivation or our motivation a little better, and then the message we want to convey. This uh, the, the report comes out of a um, collaborative work that was facilitated by um, Oxo Society for Central Asian Affairs 
in collaboration with United States Institute um, for Peace that had the title of Nationalism and Violence in Central Asia. So with no prior intention uh, to work together on, on a, a written project, uh, Vincent and I um, participated in it, uh, but I already had a hidden agenda, to be honest, um, because I have been um, observing um, quite since some time in um, policy and scholarly uh, circles in connection to Central Asia, that when we talk about nationalism and when we talk about violence, we don't talk about um, these concepts and phenomena in connection to uh, the natural environment, nature, and what becomes out of it through commodification, as we know, as resources. But there is a lot of national um, authoritarianism, populist politics, and eventually um, violence and repression associated or through and by resources, or how we manage and govern resources. This is something that's been more widely spoken about and, and looked into in different parts of, of the world. But in Central Asia, we have been much more obsessed with extremism, you know, role of religion and borders when it comes to comes to um, nationalism, um, violence and, and instability. So, um, but when you, I mean, I don't have to tell this to you. You have been there from the very beginning, right? The first toxic um, uh, spill in 98 that uh, was associated with the Kuntur gold mine. Um, we have been... Um, observing a lot of um, violence in connection um, with nature and resources. And um, of course, here I'm only talking about the um, independence era because there's also a lot of violence um, in the Soviet era as well. Um, but um, what we have uh, seen is in the name of um, development and in the name of, you know, for the people, for the nation, uh, nature has been transformed into resources. So at, at the first instant, we have been seeing a lot of um, violence against the nature, you know, against glaciers um, in, in this case. Um, but since then, uh, there has been a spillover of this very visible violence into different um, areas of, of life and um, um, encroaching on different meanings that are associated uh, with nature because, you know, the, the, there is not one nature. Um, it means different things to different people. And, and this has been um, um, progressing, evolving, unfolding since since the um, 90s. And as you said, and has been then accompanied by a loud protest, um, right? And we speak um, about some of the violence. Um, I mean, some of some of the issues that have been um, related to the Kuntur gold mine or generally mining in Kyrgyzstan. But there's so much more that we don't speak about because we don't see or we don't want to see it in the first place. And that brings me to the notion of slow violence. That here we are um, borrowing inspiration from Rob Nixon um, uh, and his work on slow violence and environmentalism of the poor uh, from 2011. That that um, encourages us to also uh, look at different kinds of violence that are, um, you know, neither connect connected to um, spectacle uh, nor, nor instantly or immediately visible, but that are still there and they, they take their toll in different, um, in different forms and different um, speeds, so to say, and um, in most cases um, out, of, out of sight. And um, we uh, talk about um, some of these manifestations of violence that go beyond what is um, readily visible, um, such as 
uh, dispossession, you know, in, in, in case of, um, you know, that started with Kumtor, uh, dispossession of glaciers, but in other cases, this is, you know, land or productive land or, or um, you know, other resources that then goes, um, goes on with denial, you know, denial with every, every new gold mine site that was planned, um, that was executed or not executed doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter really, but denial of people's basic, um, basic rights and their human rights or their constitutional rights to um, freedom of expression or just rights to participation and information. What kind of project um, is cropping up in front of their doorstep and what is gonna, what's going to happen with their lives? And then, of course, um, as, um, uh, as as protests became louder and louder, that the violence also started to un- unfortunately change its shape, and it became more and more invisible and insidious. And that I would I would say um, that 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 is the moment where we see a change in resource nationalism, in um, at least in Kyrgyz con- uh, context that. Uh, discursively, a lot of the, a lot of uh, the grievances and people's concerns that motivated protests were actually um, mobilized um, uh, around 2012-13 by Japarov um, uh, himself uh, to make to build a case for resource nationalism, saying that people demand the people, you know, the nation demands a different kind of uh, mine management or the, the, the mine that belongs to the nation. And um, you know, fast forward ten years. Uh, later, um, eventually, last year, actually, uh, the case was, you know, executed um, in Japan's term, maybe successfully, to uh, you know, and 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 that um, the Kumtor mine now belongs actually to the government. Um, and but it doesn't mean that the concerns that motivated the protest had, you know, a sense of in terms of property rights that it, that the mine should belong to state. You know, they they were very diverse. We have to also stress that at this point. But by by uh, using and coping these concerns, the case of nationalization was made. But unfortunately, uh, renationalization of mines um, uh, has so far not translated into actually taking over responsibility. And um, this what this was what we have seen um, uh, also in the case where where there was a crack in one of the pit walls um, at the Kumtor mine site, and um, Japarov's reaction to that was very telling, as as he said that oh well, disasters will continue to happen. When and what what they happen, you know, only God knows. So then, then uh, we again saw a discursive chain. What happened is that mine is now nationalized. Just to use only one case, uh, really, there are many others. Uh, but I'm really skeptical of owning responsibility. Uh, that probably will not come. Well, so far we are not observing uh, owning uh, responsibility when it comes to how how we speak about um, what nature might mean to different people and how to deal with resources in a way that is also. Uh, Democratic and and inclusive, and this is something uh, I would like to come back. But I think I will leave it at that for the moment. Yeah, thank you. Because I do want to uh, get to Chaparov specifically, but first I want to set the whole table here. Uh, so, Vincent, I'll go back to you. I mean, you know, you, you gave us the quote from Akayev. Uh, he's there's been several presidents in Kyrgyzstan. You know, it was in, and it, so if you can kind of walk us through how different administrations have looked at this. But what I'm I'm also uh, very curious about. With, in terms of resource nationalism, is is what role foreign companies played? They seem to be like the whipping boy, right? We're going to end up with Japarov here in the nationalization, but Kyrgyzstan, you know, we had Kamako at first and Sentara at Kumtorman. We have a lot of Chinese companies that are mining in Kyrgyzstan also. You know, and, and what does that say about 
the national the nationalism part you know where this is the kirgi the wealth of the kirgis people yeah well i th- i think there's definitely a, a sense that foreign actors are profiting uh much more than the actual kirgis people who you know at least in in theory uh quote unquote own those resources um that a lot of the profits are being funneled out of the country for the uh, the benefit of of foreign shareholders and and this touches a little bit on on something i did want to bring up which is uh in in peace and conflict studies there is uh this distinction between what's known as positive peace and negative peace and negative peace is is really just the the absence of sort of open conflict and it, this doesn't necessarily preclude some of the things that Barrill was discussing in terms of despoiling the environment and uh dispossess uh, dispossessing uh people of 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 uh, their livelihoods and their health positive peace on on the other hand is uh really about uh building a more inclusive just society in in which everyone benefits and i and i think um what what we really see at least from the the state centric discourses about the the, the control and, and and the use of these resources is much much more falling down on the side of, of of negative peace right that that the the resources by and large aren't really being used to benefit to benefit everybody the the the, the environment itself is uh, in in many cases as Burrell pointed out uh, being uh, despoiled and this also kind of ties in with with th- this idea that there are really different meanings regarding the environment and 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 what it means and i'm i'm hesitant to say that that these meanings are necessarily one is right and one is wrong but the the state and 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 the actors who are involved in sort of turning these resources into saleable commodities see the resources as uh, something marketable whereas in in other discourses uh, about the environment such as the ones that i that i highlighted in my remarks uh, a moment ago the environment is seen as something quite integral to kirgiz statehood to kirgiz identity and in, therefore in in some ways you know poisoning a river or destroying uh, a, a glacier is is in some ways an attack on the meaning of kirgiz identity itself or 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 you know at least something fundamental about being kirgis this connection to the environment and so what we begin to see there is that we have this these two contending resource nationalisms in a way right you have those who are interested in exploiting the environment for uh, economic at least putatively economic uh, uh benefit for for the whole country and and you have those who see the environment as being something that's that's bound up with with who they are and how they see themselves as a national community and i i don't think that these are necessarily discourses that are easily reconciled and i think that's where we start to see some of this uh this conflict emerging between uh these these two different groups and 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 i i i hesitate to say that there's only two groups i'm sure there there are many others we obviously in, in our work really only focused on kind of those two broad spheres regarding your your uh question about different administrations uh and how it's changed i i i feel that it, it, in a lot of ways even even down to today a lot of the 
the ideological content of 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 Kyrgyz uh, nationalism was was really set during the the Akayev era, and and you know it's it's morphed in 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 one way or another over time. But I I, I think that a, a lot of the the sort of vocabulary for for understanding uh, Kyrgyz Kyrgyz nationhood uh was sort of laid down the groundwork was laid down in the 1990s and and has in many respects continued to this day regarding differing views over uh how to use you know resources like gold and and, and kumtor uh it it's my sense at least and and perhaps Beryl can can weigh in on this as well uh, and correct me if 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 i if i misspeak but i i really feel that you know from the state's perspective Profiting off of these resources has has largely been the 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 primary goal, and the the foreign ownership of uh, these resources has um, uh, l- largely provided sort of a rhetorical foil in, in order to uh, secure greater uh, control over them. Thank you, Vincent. Uh, Burrell, uh, you want to you want to comment on that? I do. Uh, there are, again, so many points <laughs> I need to decide, but I think that um, uh, weaves in nicely with, uh, with your first question on slow violence. Uh, it is it is such a such a big and so little covered topic that there there are a lot of aspects uh, to unpack there. I think yeah. So uh, one thing about the administrations, I would say that um, it has uh, been part of. Um, uh, nation making, so so you know, with that um, res- nationalism, um, yeah, through resources, you know, in, in different um, intensities, of course, and I think we have seen, you know, um, the deepening nationalism, national um, uh, populist politics through Bakiev, of course, um, and it's um, it's a stronger connection to gold, I think, really uh, from uh, 2010s, um, 2011-12 on, and uh, unfortunately, last decade has witnessed. It's it's a great intensification and uh, uh, speaking to also global um, global trends because this is not something unique to Kurdistan, unfortunately, right? And uh, connection to that, um, it is also um, it, it is also a main uh, motivation. I mean, for me that to to speak about these things uh, and and to contribute to this report because when we within the Central Asian context when we talk about violence. You know, um, we don't talk enough about state violence and um, and resource nationalism um, in, the, in that connection much less. And when we talk, think about, you know, resource nationalism, okay, we are more aware of how it has been discursively changed um, since last decades. But um, mostly uh, it is still seen as um, as a state um, um, wanting to own resources, you know, nationalization of resources, mines, or um, people protesting um, for, you know, xenophobic reasons or kicking out uh, the foreign companies. But um, what I wanted to say, no, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> I missed my point. That's fine. That's fine. Because actually, there was there was something else. You know, we talked a lot about Kumtar, but I'm but I'm interested in some other mines too that that are in the country. Chatgal is one. Uh, you know, there, um, it seems it, you get to get back to the foreign ownership thing. It seems like no matter which administration was in power uh, at the time, that protests by locals against foreign owned mining companies were something the authorities were willing to go along with. For a while, and in fact, in the many cases, Kyrgyzstan, or at least the government, ended up 
getting concessions from the foreign mining companies. Clearly, the Kum Tor is the pinnacle of all this, and we're going to get to that in the second half of the show. But uh, do you see that too? I mean, the people people show up with legitimate concerns. You know, the Chatkal thing was a, a Chinese company, a gold mine that they were doing in Jalalabad province, and the Kyrgyz authorities acted very reacted very meekly to that. They they even though protesters beat up the Chinese workers, uh, several of them, burned down some of the buildings at the site, they, they got away with it. It's almost like the Kyrgyz, I don't know if the Kyrgyz authorities were afraid or or if they were actually encouraging this. So what's your feeling about those kind of protests against foreign mining companies? Does that help the government, you know, kind of uh, solidify its nationalist credentials by allowing these things to happen? I think we have to see um, see the Kyrgyz state or the state generally and, and the issue um, you are mentioning here and its connection to resource nationalism as something that is really dynamic. And um, it's um, uh, now I remember something I wanted to say. It is really um, um, dynamic um, in the uh, sense of when we look at resource nationalism or these kind of conflicts or their um, outbursts at local scale from a um, um, development uh, programming point of view or um, business point of view, it is seen as a risk or threat, first of all, to doing business. You know, it increases the cost of operation, but on the second uh, level, of course, to um, foreign direct investment uh, attraction. So uh, countries, and, and Kyrgyzstan also had th- these phases too. Um, uh, they uh, see uh, a damage to their reputation, to countries' reputation. And, um, but uh, you're right um, in, in pointing out um, um, the cases where mining companies and businesses are, are left to their devices with communities. And uh, this shows us that there is, uh, well, first of all, that resource nationalism is way beyond something that has, you know, that is just, is just a risk of doing business. This is, uh, it is much more loaded, but at the same time, it is also really fluid. And, and it, it is also at times, you know, it has to be seen within the national border, but because, you, you know, as you were mentioning, also the foreign companies, it can also uh, be mobilized for transnational resource um, project and extractions, right? So these lines are, they really coalesce. And in case of how state chooses to react, it really has to be seen within the current current problematics, uh, you know, domestic politics and, and, and other issues. What I have been um, studying and observing and even working because, you know, I actually come from um, working in such development projects that had also the aim of uh, modernizing, you know, mining sector or uh, attracting more more investment is that um, it is within the framework of corporate social responsibility that the, the state really retreats uh, its own from its own responsibilities. And it is very convenient for it to say, look, you have acquired a license. This is the community and, uh, that you have to deal with. And actually, this is, uh, you know, that was the moment of birth for uh, for greenwashing or social washing of such projects through social license to operate, right? It, it started... Um, um, emerging, I think it was um, established around 2012, that, that the state then says, sort it out yourself. You know, you have to come up with a social package or you have to, you have to sort it out basically what you have to come with. And it is a convenient way of saying we are democratic, we uh, consider a local community's concerns, but it's also a convenient way of, you know, um, choosing um, your fights, basically. And um, there is much more to the backstage of these choreographies. 
and um, it is very difficult to get access to uh, decision-making mechanisms of state um, depending on um, investment. But we know that you know the case of Kumpor, Kumtor had little to do with the with the violence against nature or then people through different mechanisms, nor did it had you know had, had little to do with actually uh, Kumtor being managed by um, a Canadian company. Okay, uh, thank you. And uh, we have reached the halfway point in the Measurely's podcast, so it's time for me to remind that uh, this is the Measurely's podcast, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's uh, current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. Bruce Benier, host of the Measurely's podcast and also the author of the weekly Central Asia in Focus newsletter. Uh, we're talking about the recent report from the Oxford Society and resource nationalism, and joining me are the authors of that report, Vincent Hartman, adjunct professor of geography and peace and conflict studies at Wayne State University in Detroit and the University of Delaware. Uh, his work has previously focused on Central Asia, specifically on religion, identity, and nationalism in Kyrgyzstan. Buril Ojakli, who leads the research project China, the EU, and Economic Development in East Euro Eastern Europe and Eurasia at the Center for East European and International Studies in Berlin. As a critical geographer, she studied uh, infrastructures, resource, resource extractivism, society-nature relations, and uh, authoritarian repression in Central Asia and South Caucasus. Uh, Brill also led transdisciplinary development projects on resource governance on behalf of the German government, the EU, and multilateral organizations. Okay, so let's get into the, the current administration uh, in Kyrgyzstan, because it's already been mentioned that uh, Sadr Japarov, who's the president of the country, was actually one of the people who years ago seemed to be one of these defenders of Kyrgyz rights to its own resources, uh, and one of the loudest voices complaining about environmental degradation at the Kumtor mine, and yet now he is the president, uh, and they've managed to seize total control of the Kumtor mine. There, it seems like there's been endless scandals practically since then. What, what happened to 19 tons of gold that they export? Where did that go exactly? Recently, a whole load of gold was found at the border that no one was very anxious to take responsibility for. You know, I'll start with you, Baril. What? what what has Japarov done? I mean, his, what I mean is his, his history. I mean, he was, he was, you know, he, actually he still is. He's a populist candidate, a populist president, right? In the past, he tried to portray himself as someone who was really kind of defending the people against these evil deals that they had with the Canadian company, corrupt officials in the Kyrgyz government who were helping the Canadian company in this case, uh, you know, and saying that, that this, this gold belongs to the Kyrgyz people. Uh, you know, it, there should be a better deal so that, that all the money that, that comes from this gold is going to the Kyrgyz people. Uh, and, and they should, you know, there shouldn't be this kind of a disregard for, for environmental consequences at the mines. That was him, as you mentioned, 10 years ago. Who is he now? Okay, I think I, I want to add to that because, um, well, first of all, actually, we don't know who, who he is right now because I think he's awfully silent these days. Um, but um, what he has done, uh, I think I, I started on the right, right right track as you asked the question, what you had in mind. I, he has done a lot of damage. And one, and one thing I really am very spiteful about is... Uh, is how he his his contribution in courts to uh, nationalism, na populist politics, nationalism, and resource nationalism. Because what he what he did 
in 2012 13 uh, and you know and how that ended is actually a tragedy and um yeah maybe an embodiment of really what we are trying to get at here with slow violence you know uh, bruce your reporting has been very informative you you were you were there in, in those years uh closely monitoring multiple spills that have had have happened and then people trying to get some sort of justice right um from the um from um yeah as, as they have been suffering from implications of the uh, um connected to toxicity and um so what happened was that using people's real um grievances he have established um, a need uh, and he mobilized a mass for um, needing to uh, own the mine for the nation. And when last year, um, I think it was end of July, um, when the, the wars between uh, Santera and uh, Kyrgyz um, government came to an end, was, was um, yeah, made official, Japar's press secretary um, announced this as a historical justice that was a big victory, really. And he used the words for the nation and uh, for mine. And, um, and that, you know, hopes of um, people, Kyrgyz people have uh, come true. And this is, this helps me really um, illuminate what is meant by um, slow violence and why slow in front of violence, because it wasn't only enough that people have lost, you know, their livelihoods or will continue to in different mindsets, because Kumtor is just one of these cases. And you know, I keep saying it, uh, but we are we are really stuck with the more spectacular forms of violence. But what happened was that beyond the physical, beyond you know the the, the very visibly uh, palpable violence, is that uh, the psychological uh, violence of ha- having to not not only having gone through you know what happened to you, losing your um, your um, um, uh, connection to nature, livelihoods, um, uh, your health. You actually you know the fact that you had to seek justice through a number of court cases and prove that, you know, something happened to you uh, and circumstances that were made extremely difficult um, is, uh, uh, and then out of sight, right? Because um, uh, we don't have the attention or time or whatever to care about these issues that continue to happen. And um, uh, this is where also the notion of slow violence coming as one of the cases that uh, um, Nixon talks about is was actually Chernobyl, you know, how it was not enough that people went through, but they actually had to uh, yeah, live with um, the burden, the responsibility of having to actually prove that they and they went through these um, these struggles. And um, to add to this and also move beyond Kumtor, and um, speak about um, different types of slow violence is uh, uh, cases such as um, Arlovka. And when I, you know, when I speak about these these cases and in our conversations, Bruce, I feel like I am ruminating over and over again the same things. But then I realize I zoom out and I still realize that these topics are, you know, not spectacular enough to be talked more and more. But just to, in a nutshell, talk about another case I have been looking into for many, many years. It's uh, um, the case of Arlovka that host Taldebulak um, Levavrezhny gold mine. It is the third biggest um, gold deposit in the country and actually a Kyrgyz um, Chinese joint venture. The mine started operating in 2015 and um, it has gone through different uh, protest periods, but it is called or it's been referred to since you know the community and company reached an agreement um, as a case of, as a cooper- cooperative case because 
you know, people of Arlovka, uh, they have already known mining um, during um, Soviet uh, times and um, as opposed to other, uh, let's say, militant or resisting uh, cases, um, mining communities, they are, um, they have been reflected as cooperative and a good community that uh, fosters the development of the nation again this you know the nation for the nation but what we don't know is what has uh, people what have people of Arlovka still going through since uh, actually saying yes to this mine they still uh, are actually in different ways resisting how the mine has been operating how the resources have been uh, governed and how they have so little information um, access to information and, and and space for actually being part of governance and so what happens is that um, they are made invisible, basically, because, you know, through uh, praising, uh, even, even through praising, and, and that is unfortunately one of the damages that um, Japarov administration is um, uh, going with, through praising, um, you are psychologically pressuring into uh, pressuring people into silence, basically, and denying their realities, their reasons why they accept the mine in the first place. But um, but 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 the fact that that they actually resist, and we don't know about that. So you know, we also see here um, a different kind of violence through dispossession because they they are being dispossessed of their um, voice and representation. If you would look at the statistics, you know, they would not even appear as a case of uh, protest. And um, that is one of the things I really want to get across is that this com- this conversation we are having that uh, that stands for um, a deep rooted problem uh, has to do a lot with the definition definitions how we define violence how we define peace as absence of you know overtly visible uh, physical violence or how you know cooperation is. Um, a lack of conflict or how protests, you know, stands for maybe violence. These uh, categories are really uh, problematic. And, um, uh, and and that is something that really case of Arlovka has uh, shown me um, is that uh, we have to be careful about how we define these things. I know it takes time and that is a bit of um, the problem, you know, we are facing. Um, we have to be fast in how we report these things, research these things. Um, um, but Compared to the um, the slow cooking, you know, phenomena or like um, uh, violence that don't get attraction, we really feed into problematic things. Um, and then when I say we, it means you know the policymakers, researchers, journalists, all of us have a responsibility. I know it takes time, but it also saves lives and traditions, and and also actually faith. Okay, thank you, Perot. Uh, Vincent. But you know, my question for you is. Now that now that uh, Japarov has been in power, the, the same people that, that he supported that were calling for more transparency in the mining industry, uh, more more of the filter down of you know of the funds that were got that came from the sales of of gold in this case, uh, but uh, but other minerals too that they they've been kind of recast. Japarov's here in now and and complaining about that, which is what. Basically, every administration has said, if you're defending the Kyrgyz land, you know, we're absolutely behind you. We support this. But it, you're kind of seen as like an opposition figure, right? You, you're, you're against government policy. So uh, w- when people come out and start saying, where is the money from Kumtor going? Uh, you know, I mentioned what last year there was a big scandal where that people were saying you've exported, you've exported more than 20 tons of gold in the last year, but you on your balance sheet, you don't explain where 19 tons of that gold went. Uh, and, and Japarov said it was a state secret at first. He said, we don't really have to tell you. Um, and and that the people that were demanding exactly 
what everyone expected them to and what administrations have supported become the villains. How does that fit with resource nationalism? I, I think it fits in to, to, to the concept of resource nationalism uh, pretty pretty clearly. Um, the the uh, if we think of resource nationalism like any other discourse uh, around nationalism, uh, we we can see it as uh, a, a way of defining uh, the the national community, who's in and, and and who's out. How you know what what is the nation. Um, and, and resources, as I've said, is, is sort of the, the idiom through, through which that is done in this case. And, and you know, we, we see this really clearly with this, I guess, now dormant uh, holding company called Heritage of the Great Nomads, right? It doesn't get much uh, more, more clear than that, this, this, this holding company um, that, that was uh, supposedly sort of looking, looking after the, the sort of the mining sector, um, really quite explicitly defining gold in this case or, or other minerals as, as being, uh, sort of the heritage of, of, of the Kyrgyz people. Um, and, and so if we, if we think of, uh, resource nationalism in this way, then, and, and it's a very state centric discourse in, 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 in this, uh, uh, sort of mode, then, then it becomes very clear why the people who are suddenly sort of questioning, uh, the, the Japarov, uh, government or questioning the state about where the profits are going and what are you doing with this gold and, 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 you know, where is it going to suddenly are sort of positioning themselves against a particular construction of the national community, right? One that is, uh, very much, uh, again, in, in this mode, sort of a, a state centric discourse that is, uh, very much focused on uh, uh, the, the the resources that that are coming out of out of the earth. Um, so I, I you know I I, I think it's almost uh, uh, and it's also a very easy way right for for uh, a populist government to sort of uh, assert its uh, uh, control uh, or its authority by uh, more or less uh, being able to stand up and say well you know what do you mean we you know the, we're the ones who who are controlling this um we're you know this is for the for the kyrgyz people and and are are you uh standing standing against us it's you know kind of a, an easy way to to delegitimize uh, uh i guess the opposition in, in in a pretty underhanded kind of fashion if if you ask me um but but one that i don't think is a, a especially uh uncommon Okay, thanks. Uh, well, we're getting close to the end here uh, because we've been going for a while. We could say a lot about this, but I'm going to give you each a chance to make a last comment. But also, I know that there were some recommendations that you had at the end of your article or your report about how people inside Kyrgyzstan and, and people and organizations outside Kyrgyzstan can deal with curbing resource nationalism. So um, I'll start with you, Vincent. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that um, as Barilla has already sort of said, it, it's really important to, to look uh, more closely into uh, some of these questions about slow violence, uh, looking into questions about what, what resource nationalism is. And if, if we are uh, interested in this as, as a, a, a phenomenon that we can, uh, that policymakers or activists or, or others can intervene with, we, we need to understand that it's not just a, a sort of univocal phenomenon. There are lots of different 
contending resource nationalisms, even within a, a, a small country uh, like Kyrgyzstan. And, and, you know, if you were to look at Kazakhstan and, and the role of, of hydrocarbons, right, you would probably find very, very similar uh, phenomena happening there. So I, I, I think it's, it's really quite important uh, from, from a policymaking, from an activist standpoint, to uh, recognize that sometimes the, the kinds of rhetoric that is coming out of the state vis-a-vis re- resources isn't necessarily coming from a you know a position just of 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 trying to secure those resources for for the state, but that there's also an ideological dimension here as well that that really can't be ignored and because there's an ideological dimension to it we we have to look past beyond what just the state or or just what state actors uh are are saying about it and and, and look uh more closely at what communities themselves uh, uh have to say about the disposition of resources who should benefit from them uh, what what those resources or what the natural environment itself really actually means because we might get very, very different answers. And I think that the the sort of fissure between uh, maybe state-centric discourses and community-centric discourses or or different ideas about nationalism, the fissures between those things are, are where some of this violence or, or this slow violence is, is uh, able to sort of metastasize, that, that this is where it's able to, to, to act. And I, I, I think that's, you know, for, for me, at least uh, coming to this project, that was one of the most important uh, things that, that, that I was interested in trying to, to get at is, is how do different understandings of, of what the Earth's natural environment means vis-a-vis nationalism and identity, uh, what, what do these different things uh, mean and, and how can they contribute to or per- perhaps potentially uh, diffuse uh, conflicts within or between uh, 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 societies. Okay, thank you, Vincent. Uh, Burrell, last word goes to you. Bruce, thank you. I'll try to um, speak less gibberish this time. <laughs> you mentioned one very important thing when um, uh, last year uh, we again, you know, lost um, uh, some part of gold, and there was there were inconsistencies in accounting. He mentioned that yeah, well, we cannot really you know um, disclose um, the details about how much gold is transported to where. You know, it's uh, for safe security, state security reasons. I think this is really um, this uh, this. Um, exemplifies um, it's one of the great examples of what we have been talking about because um, this is also you know an extension of um, of resource nationalism but also helps me make the point of you know why this all of this you know nationalism of and through resources and violence has a lot to do with democracy and um, when we look at the current programming development programming um, to go back to you know why we had this workshop in the first place with Oxus and ESIP and we have this report serious. When you look at it, uh, violence, democracy, human rights, um, extremism, you know, um, uh, these issues, uh, they are to an extent sometimes um, uh, connected amongst each other. But when it comes to environment, you know, we almost uh, either we talk about uh, cross-border transboundary resource management or climate and ecological resilience. But um, um, the elephant in the room of, you know, all these extractive uh, nature transformative projects, uh, that, that, uh, how we manage, um, these projects, uh, in a very secretive way that this is 
also related to human rights and environment and democracy and violence. You know, we don't talk about these things. So uh, I, we have to go beyond um, silo um, uh, programming uh, and also um, get a little bit over, um, you, you know, extremism. I understand it's a very important issue for the region, but there's also a lot of violence coming from the state. And um, uh, we don't have to, you know, pick our fights all the time. You just have to be really receptive to different types of violence happening. Um, and um, uh, with that, you know, the, the issue of definition I mentioned, this is something very important. And, and um, with that, it is also important that development initiatives, policymakers, that they do not reproduce problematic state discourses. This is something that I have uh, committed myself to fight against is, uh, you know, one thing that when people protest in Kurdistan or in Central Asia, they are labeled, you know, mobs for hire or um that um, uh, they are just loud, opportunistic um, protesters. Um, and there is a tendency uh, to reproduce easily these discourses. And we have to pass beyond that. And we also do not need to um, reinvent uh, the wheel, really, because uh, there are a lot of um, affected communities that connect to um, uh, different networks of activists. And um, there's a lot of work going on and also scholars. And uh, so it is important to connect to activists' uh, matter of concerns um, uh, to really um, co make a contribution to um, help minimize um, violence. I think I will, I will stop at that. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and we've come to the end of the show. Again, there's a lot more we can say about this, and I'm sure we'll all get together and, and speak about it again uh, in the future. Uh, the issue is certainly not going away anytime soon. And, of course, to the audience, you can find that uh, the report on resource nationalism and slow violence in Kyrgyzstan at the Oxford Society's website. So I'd like to thank my guests today, Baril and Vincent. I appreciate you being on the show. And a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjly's podcast producer in Washington, D.C. Uh, and a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjly's podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting RFERL's website at rfarl.org. Thanks, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.